Hi, and welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Carmen DeVito, one of the principals of Groundworks, Inc., and with my co-host, Alice Krieg, who is away this weekend, we design, build, and maintain gardens in and around New York City. Our show, We Dig Plants, broadcasts from two shipping containers in Bushwick, Brooklyn, located next to Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street. Our sponsor today is Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. I've tasted their beef. It's amazing. So before we get into our show, I just want to thank Jimmy Carbone, um, co-host of Beer Sessions, for inviting us out to Pig Island on Governor's Island yesterday. It was amazing. It was really, really good food, great beer, and really good company. So thank you, Jimmy. It was a pleasure to be there. Um, And it was a beautiful day, and it's harvest season. And this week on We Dig Plants, we continue with our Fruit of the Month Club series that started last month with the grape. Today is episode two, the apple. That's the fruit that's been tempting humans from Adam and Eve to Snow White and influencing everyone from Calvin Klein to your first grade teacher. Now, New York City is not called the Big Apple because Peter Stuyvesant planted an apple from Holland on the corner of 13th Street and 3rd Avenue. But because it's such a perfect and apt symbol of our city of promise, riches, knowledge, and sensuality, I think Peter just wanted to make sure he would have some hard cider on hand. That's why he planted it. And for me, it's the quintessential fall fruit. It's one of my favorites. It's been the object of numerous trips upstate with my family to pick our own. Usually too many apples. I think last year we we picked like 300 pounds of apples, Macintoshes, Macoons, and even some red delicious that actually taste good as opposed to the you know, mealy, awful cafeteria apples um, that you get. So what's more American than apple pie or more romantic than an apple orchard? Whenever um, Alice and I meet a new potential client and we see an apple tree gracing their house or their land, I know that it's someone that we're going to be able to work with, that they're going to be all right. So we're talking about Malus domestica, or the domesticated apple that traveled from far away to reach our shores and to fill our pies. And botanists speculate that its origins are the forested slopes of the Tian Shen Mountains of Kazakhstan. And humans have tinkered with the apple to make them sweeter and, and more vigorous for millennia. In fact, as early as 323 BC, Theophrastus discussed six varieties of apples and discussed grafting and general tree care. He also observed that seeds almost always produce trees with inferior quality fruit. So unlike the legend of uh, Johnny Appleseed, most trees nowadays are not planted from seed. And we're going to get a little bit into that. Um, So that leads us a little bit into um, apple botany. The apple is a member of the Rosaceae or rose family, which includes some of its obvious relatives like the pear and the plum, but also includes, interestingly, strawberries, raspberries, and even some ornamentals such as hawthorns and spirea, which we use a lot in the urban landscape. And all rose family members have five flower parts flower parts in fives or multiples of fives. So if you cut an apple down the center, you're going to find five chambers with um, 
about two seeds each. So the genus is Malus, and it has over 22 different species. And as I said, the species we're concerned with is the Malus domestica, which is a temperate zone tree. So it needs a cold winter or dormancy to set fruit in the spring. But what's interesting about the apple too, the domestic apple, is that it's so genetically diverse that it doesn't grow true from its seeds. So one tree can produce seedlings of like an astonishing diversity. One of my favorite apples, for example, the Macintosh was a chance seedling found on an Ontario farm in 1811. And that turned out to be quite an important cultivar that's still being grown today. So that quality of apples mixing up its genes so prolifically makes it highly adaptable and makes it a great plant to experiment with in breeding programs. And these folks that, that, um, that study apples and other fruit trees, palmologists, work in an industry that produces over 220 million bushels of apples a year. And from what my understanding and research is, that they still come from, many still come from family-owned farms. So today, I have as our guest someone who knows these apple growers and the state of commercial apple, apple growing a lot more intimately than I do, Stephen Hoying from Cornell University's Extension Service. Stephen, thank you for being on our show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Great. Um, I'm going to um, share a little bit about you with our, with our um, audience. Um, Steve is well known to New York fruit growers and has a national and international reputation working with tree fruit and apples in particular. He served as cooperative extension educator in Western New York for tree fruit for 24 years before tackling the responsibility of conducting applied research on tree fruit and grapes at Cornell's Hudson Valley Lab in Eastern New York. He is now developing a comprehensive research and extension program on tree fruit and grapes with others at the lab. So I guess, Stephen, you're going to put um, uh, apple and fruit and maybe cider making on the map again in New York State, I hope. <laughs> well, I hope it hasn't been off the map for some time. <laughs> New York is the second leading producer of apples in the country. I will only eat an apple from New York, just so you know okay. that. <laughs> Not from Chile. (laughs) Um, So after his graduate work at Michigan State and the University of California, Davis, he first came to New York in 1982 um, as a specialist in integrated pest management. And having spent over 20 years um, assessing apple planting systems, he has vast experience with all aspects of developing efficient ways to grow apples. Over the years, there have been very few areas of tree fruit culture that he has not explored, including work on varieties, tree fruit nutrition, growth regulators, ground cover management, vigor control, and replant disease. His favorite extension activity is to work directly with commercial growers to help solve their production problems. So, Stephen, tell us a little bit about the history of um, commercial apple growing in New York State. Weren't apple orchards part of almost every farm? Oh, they have been. Um, it was a staple for people, and not only for the fresh fruit, but for the uh, cider, because cider was something that wouldn't spoil. So every farm uh, in New York would plant apple trees. In fact, uh, in, in eastern New York, uh, where, uh, apple, where farms were granted from, uh, from the royalty, mm-hmm. uh, that it was a requirement that people plant fruit trees on those farms. That's interesting. And did they have to share some of their cider with the king? Is that part of it? <laughs> I wasn't there, but I'm sure that's true. I imagine they had taxes just like they do today. Yeah, interesting. So, um, so what kind of varieties did they typically grow then? And tell tell me about that and what kind of practices they used uh, in the early part of our history. Well, most of the the, the varieties they 
grew were not anything like the ones that we grow today because uh, they were grown from seed. And as you mentioned in your introduction, that uh, there's a wide diversity, and every time you, you uh, cross uh, an apple and produce a seed and put that seed in the ground, you get a different variety of apple. So uh, the way that they propagated trees was to just harvest the seeds from the fruit that they were eating and plant them out, and then after about six to eight years, they'd have fruit, and they'd decide whether that particular uh, tree was a uh, produced suitable fruit or not, and then they'd replant again. It wasn't until... Uh, it wasn't until really into the 1800s, uh, mid-1800s, when they started to graft trees so that they had the same variety uh, that would be repeatable year after year. That's really interesting. Um, so they um, so they had uh, sort of little mini-experiments going on, and they had to wait quite a while before they could figure out what, what that apple tree was going to produce. Yeah, actually, an apple from seed takes a very long time to get into production. They have what we call a very long, extended juvenile period. And today, uh, our growers don't have to go through that because through research over, over millennia, or not over millennia, but over decades, mm-hmm. people have developed uh, rootstocks that they can graft these particular varieties on that will uh, do all kinds of things for the commercial grower. It'll make trees smaller, and, and everybody's heard of dwarf trees now. We're growing trees, uh, apple trees now, more like uh, the grape growers grow grapes in those same densities. They will uh, resist diseases uh, that are very important, very devastating. Uh, they will uh, produce larger fruit, believe it or not, and they'll produce sweeter fruit as well. So the rootstock is an integral part of, of growing an apple. That's really interesting to me. I mean, don't they use rootstocks that aren't even apple uh, species? Well, most most of them uh, on uh, apples are uh, different forms of apple species. At least they're malice, okay. uh, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But these have been uh, originally where most of the rootstock work was done was in England, and they mm-hmm. actually went out and looked at different uh, different uh, varieties of trees, and they noticed that one tree might be smaller than another, so they, they started to use that fruit as a rootstock, or one uh, particular type of tree would survive a, a, a soil disease, so they used that. And th- after they selected these, then they started breeding, uh, making breeding crosses to enhance or improve uh, the characteristics of each of those rootstocks. So they use they would use things even like crabapple species or um, just anything that would be desirable, whatever trait they exactly. would they would were looking for at the time. Yes, exactly. And and then they would say, well, this one is small and it's uh, resistant to a certain root rot. Let's cross those and see if we can uh, develop a rootstock that will have both of those characteristics. Okay. And they have successfully done that. In fact, today at uh, Cornell University at the Geneva. Uh, Experiment Station, we have a very active uh, rootstock breeding program that is doing just that. Hmm. So the, you were saying earlier that, um, and we'll get into more about your research in a little bit later in the show, but I'm very interested about the hard cider element of it. Um, they were growing apples to make cider. Was it a profitable trade um, during that period? Um, did they make it just for their own consum- consumption? Yeah, as I understand it, it was mostly for their own uh, consumption. There wasn't really a lot of safe things to drink during the, that period. So they uh, did it mostly for their own consumption. And then I imagine, I wasn't there again, mm-hmm. successful apple growers were able to, to sell um, some of their product to, to taverns and other places. Mm-hmm. So, so 
So in New York State, are people making cider for sale now? Are they? Uh, well, there has been a resurgence in the production of, of hard cider. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they've made uh, sweet cider or, or non-alcoholic cider for, for uh, a long time, and most people are only aware of it uh, in the fall during uh, harvest season when all the supermarkets and farm markets sure. and everything carry their, their ciders. But uh, now supermarkets are carrying ciders, uh, sweet ciders, um, all year long, and you can get those in most of the progressive uh, markets. And, and we have uh, several pr- uh, producers of cider in, mm-hmm. the, in the state that supply them. Uh, the hard cider is, has become uh, more of a resurgence type of product. Uh, several of our growers looking for ways to diversify or to have uh, ways of, of improving their profitability have, have looked into producing hard cider, and we have uh, several in the state that are producing hard cider now. Oh, that's great. I happen to like it. <laughs> I don't know a lot of people that do yet, but I think it's been sort of far from our cultural practice and use for, for too long, you know. So it would be great if a farmer could make use of all their excess apples for, for um, perhaps a product that has, a, you know, a wider appeal and a, perhaps a wider profit margin, you know. It's certainly the the growers that have gotten into it uh, uh, certainly uh, find it to be a very profitable product for them. Uh, And there's a number of different philosophies of how to make hard cider. There's the the French philosophy where you put it into a a, a wine bottle and and you market it that way. There's kind of the English philosophy for putting it into bottles. Uh, And... uh, some people will use the traditional, older heritage-type varieties, uh, the ones typical in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other people will use our, just our usual varieties in a blend uh, that makes a pretty nice hard cider. Wow. Um, well, I also love the cider donuts that, um, <laughs> that are made with the apple cider. That's one of my favorite things to do at the Union Square Farmer's Market. You can't just get enough of them. It's just amazing. Um, well, you mentioned earlier that um, New York State ranks second only to Washington State yep. in apple production. So, is it still viable? Is it still a viable enterprise for a family farm to to run to have an orchard and and um, sort of sustain themselves? What is the status of things right now? Yeah, not not particularly. I mean, if you're going to uh, produce apples commercially and make a living at it, you you pretty much have to have over 50 acres of, of apples. Mm-hmm. And 50 acres of apples doesn't lend itself to a, to a general farm that grows other things. So most of our producers in the state are specialists. They grow, um, depending on which part of the state it is, they'll grow apples in particular, and then they'll grow other stone fruit uh, like peaches or apricots or plums, uh, and some small fruit like uh, strawberries or raspberries or something that blends into their thing. But there's no really uh, small apple producers, uh, except those that can, can market right off the farm, and they might be a little bit smaller. So, that, yeah, I, I would imagine that it's, such, it's so very, very seasonal, they would have to spread out their, their crops to have, you know, crops of different um, time periods and ripening, like the peaches. And, mm-hmm. and that's why so many farms, you can pick your peaches, you can pick strawberries, you can pick apples. Um, that's particularly true here in the Hudson Valley, where, where uh, the fruit crops are more diversified. And the reason for that is because they have a large consumer base who can come directly to the farm and, and pick what they want. Or, and there's also the green markets in New York City that they can serve, or small farm markets. Western New York, uh, it's a completely different situation, where they have specialists that just grow processing apples for the production of 
of applesauce, slices for pie, and uh, and also for uh, juice. Wow, that's so it's completely different um, uh, industry in Western New York than it is here in the Hudson Valley. Well, I want to get into that a little bit more. We have to take a little bit of a break. Um, you're listening to uh, We Dig Plants on the Heritage Na- Radio Network. We'll be back in a moment. When it's my moment in the sun Oh, how beautiful I'll be But in a normal sort of way Like I am you and you are me Welcome back. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. That was Moment in the Sun. And today we're having our Moment in the Sun uh, with our guest, Stephen Hoying, who's graciously joining us from his office at Cornell on a Sunday to talk about apples. Thanks again, Stephen, for being with us on Sunday. Um, We were talking a little bit about the difference between um, apple um, orchards in the Hudson Valley versus the western part of the state. Um, and my understanding from from a little bit of research that I did is that there's some families that have you know in the seventh or eighth generation of apple growing. Is that true upstate? Uh, that's, yeah, that's absolutely true. It's not necessarily seventh or eighth generation of apple growing mm-hmm. because those early generations may have had apples like we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. But uh, for several generations, maybe four or five, they have been growing apples commercially. Wow. And apples have been a pretty important part of New York's economy for a long time. I read that by 1820, New York was exporting apples to England by schooner. Right. So now, tell me a little bit about where our apple crop ends up now that we're not drinking so much hard cider, even though I'm trying to do my part. (laughs) (laughs) Our our apple crop here in New York is exported all over the world. Uh, Great. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, we we uh, we have a very strong export market, pri- primarily to England. Uh, they love our empire apples, so uh, we have a big export uh, market to England. Other areas of the world where they grow a lot of apples, it's a little bit more difficult. Uh, we don't send apples uh, or too many apples to New Zealand or Australia, where they are also net exporters. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, if you looked at a map, uh, it would be a pretty good shotgun blast across the across the world where our apples go. Most of them, obviously, uh, in New York are consumed in the eastern part of the United States. Uh, that makes sense, go, sure. Uh, it's kind of hard to go upriver and, and get them into Washington. And then California has a few uh, 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 export uh, restrictions where, where it makes it very difficult uh, for apples to get into there. But uh, generally, you can find uh, apples from New York just about anywhere in the United States. Yes, I remember um, recently this summer I drove cross-country and I remember passing their big, you know, agricultural inspection station oh. signs. It was the only state that I noticed had these. <laughs> yeah, yeah, California, I mean, just just before you get into California. Yeah, so yeah. how important are apples to New York's economy? I mean, as a talk to me in terms of dollars. How much, how much money does it produce? 
you know, I'm pretty ignorant on that uh, mm-hmm. in that area. I'm uh, I'm a cultural practice specialist that can okay. tell you everything about growing them and everything. But okay. uh, in terms of what it means to New York State, I do know that uh, that apples are an extremely important uh, crop uh, in New York's economy. Obviously, dairy and some other things are more important. Sure, sure. Um, well, we'll have to look into that and maybe put some of that information on our Facebook fan page. I'm sure Cornell has some of that information, I bet, on their website. Yeah, and, and uh, New York also has a very strong uh, uh, grower organization called uh, the New York Apple Association, and they have a, a website that's just outstanding Okay. for that. And that would probably be a very good one for most consumers to, to look at if they're interested in New York apples. What is that website, Stephen? I'll share it with our audience. Sure. You want it now? Yeah. It's uh, www.nyapplecountry.com. Great. Okay, I'm going to also post it on our Facebook fan page. So, um, so I was reading also that most older orchards in the state have around 35 to 50 trees per acre. As you were saying, they're kind of spaced out. Now uh, there's new planting systems that are putting up to 1,000 trees per acre. Tell me a little bit more about that and what, what that, what's involved with that and what that means. Yeah, when, when, uh, now with the advent of, of the rootstocks, uh, the dwarfing rootstocks, we've been able to plant our trees much closer together. The traditional orchard was 27 to 35 apples uh, uh, trees per acre, mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, would take 10, 12, 15 years to get into full production. Wow. Uh, now, with the new rootstocks, because they're not only small, they're precocious, they come into bearing very quickly, that we can produce 60 or 70 bushels of apples per acre the year of planting or the year after planting. And, and what that does is that, yes, it's, there's a lot more trees and a lot more cost involved, but your return is also earlier. So you're able to, to pay off the interest on any of the money you borrow to put in this uh, apple orchard sooner. Uh, that is the, astoundingly fast for a fruit tree. I planted an orchard here on our station this year, this spring, and picked 60 bushel of apples, uh, which is uh, it's about 50 pounds per bushel approximately. 60 bushel on this one-acre plot uh, this fall. Wow. So what, what technologies have um, allowed this to happen? What, what specific kinds of things have occurred to allow this process to be sped up? Well, primarily the, the development of new uh, rootstocks has been one, but also mm-hmm. pruning and training systems. And, and that's one of the things that, that we've worked on primarily. Uh, the way you prune a tree, the way you train a tree uh, has a lot to do with how soon it'll produce apples. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I was going to ask you about pruning. I'm very famous among my gardening friends and gardening enemies for being a ruthless pruner of trees and shrubs. <laughs> and that's one of the worst things you could do with an apple tree. Really? It, it, the more you prune it, the more vegetative it'll want to be. Interesting. And, and the more vegetative it will be, the, the more it will resist producing fruit. So, do, okay, well, I'm going to stay away with my pruners. Um, so, but tell me about the kind of pr- the types of pruning that, that are necessary for apples to be productive. What, um, what if yeah. you can, um, I know it's probably something that is best described with a flow chart or something. But well, I could spend a day talking about <laughs> pruning, and I have. Uh, but uh, generally, it, it depends on the spacing or the, the, uh, the spacing that you're going to plant the tree. Okay. And like like you mentioned earlier, that traditionally they were uh, 27 trees to the acre, which was uh, about 35 feet apart between mm-hmm. the tree. That's so, what I think of when I go apple picking. They're yeah. about 
that distance apart, yeah. So what you'd have to do is, is you'd have to prune that tree very strongly to produce a strong framework in order to, to, to create, to get that vegetative growth to fill that whole space. Mm-hmm. The exact opposite is what we're doing today. We're planting them no further than three feet apart. And, and so what we do is we'll remove any big branches, and then we won't prune it at all. We won't, we won't cut it back. And it will, uh, in response, grow very small little shoots, maybe a foot or a foot and a half long, and then spurs. And, and those spurs will be productive and produce fruit, and then the fruit load on that tree will prevent it from growing anymore. So we can keep it in that three-foot space by, by producing an annual crop of, of fruit. So is that something similar to, you know, those old methods like espalier or Belgian fence at all? Well, that, in a way, uh, es- mm-hmm. espalier and Belgian fence are, are both very um, structured systems mm-hmm. that uh, people really had to, to train. Now, with the espalier, the reason it fruits so early is because you bend the branch down, and that um, uh, produces a hormonal effect that causes fruiting. So any kind of bending of an apple branch will will, uh, will uh, stimulate uh, or, or uh, reduce auxin production and, and stimulate cytokinin production, which are hormones, important hormones, and that will um, cause fruiting. So, wow. ben- so to do an espalier, you have to do a lot of bending. A lot of bending produces a lot of fruit. Wow. Um, so I'm trying to picture what these apple trees that are three feet apart look like. Do they just look like a big, you know, like a bush? Is well, it like a next, shrub? Next time, next time you come <laughs> apple picking in the Hudson Valley, uh, most of our growers who are uh, commercial growers that pack and ship apples rather than um, do you pick mm-hmm. have planted these high-density systems. And, and it would, might be very easy to mistake them for grapes because there are trellises and there are wire and there are posts at each tree three feet apart. And if you didn't really pay attention, you wouldn't know they were apples. Wow. I'm going to have to look for that. Um, the next time I go up. So I was also reading, Stephen, um, that the Apples of New York was this sort of big two-volume set that was published in 1905, yeah. and it listed over a thousand varieties existing yeah. at that time. So now, um, from what I read, there are approximately 30 varieties in commercial production. That, that's about right. Yeah, and it, it varies. Uh, there has been a resurgence in new apple varieties more recently uh, because uh, People, uh, well, it's kind of a supply and demand curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's Red Delicious everywhere, and you can get Red Delicious from every different grower, so you can't command a high price in the grocery store. Some growers have found out that if they start producing boutique apples or apples with a very limited, um, a limited quantity, then they can command a higher price. Yes, and that's definitely reflected in the supermarkets of New York. So, uh, well, well, we're actually very good in, in terms of the number of varieties that we have in our in our. Uh, in our supermarkets now. I mean, you see uh, new varieties from from, uh, New Zealand and ones from Europe all the time. Yeah, so what new varieties do you think are showing some promise and will become, you know, the sort of favorite apples of the future? Well, right now there's one, everybody's probably familiar with Honeycrisp. Honeycrisp is is really, in in the scheme of things, a relatively new variety. Empire is an example. Uh, Empire was produced and named in the early 1960s. It really didn't become popular until the mid-80s in New York. So Honeycrisp has only been around for about 12 years now, and it's already taken over the market. Um, 
uh, people who have developed Honeycrisp have uh, found a new apple variety um, produced at the University of Minnesota, and they're going to start on a marketing campaign for that variety, and it's called Sweet Tango. Uh, so I believe that consumers in the United States will be seeing all kinds of new varieties in the future. Uh, our growers here in New York have uh, picked up uh, two varieties that were produced at the Geneva Experiment Station at Cornell University. Mm-hmm. Right now, they have real sexy names, New York 1 and New York 2. <laughs> <laughs> That'll <laughs> but, change. <laughs> uh, yeah, but eventually, um, uh, and, and I don't believe it'll be too long, that our consumers will, be, will see these varieties on their store shelves. Well, I'm glad to hear that. It's always nice to have new tastes. And it's just as there's been a resurgence with the heirloom vegetables, I think the same thing is going to happen uh, with tree fruits, don't you think? I, I, I do think so. Uh, at least I hope so. And then maybe um, my son and his school cafeteria will not have the horrible, mealy um, <laughs> red apple that he can't eat. What is it about those red delicious that makes them so mealy? Can you answer that? Uh, well, it mostly has to do with harvest. Oh. Uh, I mean, any any fruit is going to suffer if it's not harvested correctly and on time. And uh, it's not as easy to, to to figure out when to harvest something like a red delicious that's gets red in, in the middle of July, because yeah. color is one of the important ways to do it. Uh, there's also other considerations like like marketing windows, early market windows are. Are uh, are more profitable than than in the midstream of the season. So sure, um, I'm imagining they pick them in, like you said, early, and then they're stored somewhere for like a really long time. At least that's what they taste like, Steve. Well, yeah, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, apples right now, uh, most apple varieties can be stored up to 12 months in controlled atmosphere storage, uh, and that's been around for for quite some time. But uh, there are also other ways of manipulating the, the uh, natural hormones within fruit to, to keep them on the tree longer and to make them store longer. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, if, to keep the business profitable, people have to do everything they can. Of course, I, I understand that. And speaking of uh, manipulating things, I was also interested to read about something called the gene gun and the use of this sort of antibacterial gene from a moth to, to sort of fight fire blight. In apple trees, yeah, is that yeah. is that going is that research happening right now? Yes, it is actually. It's been going on for quite some time, and Dr. Mm-hmm. Herb Aldwinkle at the Geneva Experiment Station um, has uh, tried to put uh, genetic material into the M26 rootstock. I know it's a little bit too technical, but but go on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the M26 rootstock was uh, extremely susceptible to fire blight. But it had a lot of great characteristics that our apple growers like to use. It was resistant uh, to other diseases. It had a fairly small tree. It produced large fruit. It produced uh, flat flat branch angles. Mm-hmm. The one drawback was it was extremely susceptible to fire blight, and even a little bit of fire blight, and it would kill the rootstock, which would kill the top of the tree. Mm-hmm. So what he has uh, has done is used several methods uh, for introducing genes that will prevent fire blight. Now, originally, he did that using um, uh, proteins from crayfish, um, and obviously, people don't want to think that their apples have crayfish in them. Yes. So yes. he has uh, changed his research focus, and he's only looking at uh, genes that come from apples now. Oh, so, okay. So it's uh, you know he right now he has a rootstock that our growers could use that is resistant to fire blight. But uh, just the, uh, the consumer preference about uh, using animals in, in, in fruit 
I, I agree with him. I, I have to agree with that. I think a lot of people, um, especially people listening to this radio station, <laughs> would agree with that. <laughs> um, so um, a lot of gardeners... I know for the reason that we're talking about are afraid to grow fruit trees and apple trees specifically because of their reputation for attracting pests and, and diseases as we were talking about. Can you um, briefly give our listeners some advice on planting and growing apple trees, maybe what varieties are best for the home grower and, and how to do it sustainably? Oh boy, another whole day. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the, the, the key to growing uh, in the east growing apples in the east is that uh, we have just a tremendous complex of insects and diseases that will attack apples. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the New York State Experiment Station was founded because the apple industry was foundering because of apple scab and codling moth, two, two main pests. Uh, breeders have been able to solve the disease problem, the apple scab and the powdery mildew problem, by producing apple trees that are called disease-free or disease-resistant. And there are a number of varieties of disease-resistant uh, apples that, that a grower can, uh, that a person can, can plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with them is that, that the development of these were much later in time than some of the other more popular varieties, and uh, they, aren't, they don't have all the great qualities of the ones that are, are still uh, susceptible to diseases. Um, so there's a couple of, of varieties, uh, one called Mac Free, one called Nova Spy, one called Liberty. Uh, there's just a, a host of these disease-resistant ones. The insects have been uh, a harder thing to conquer, and we've actually established a new planting here at the station where we're going to look at, at sustainable ways of growing uh, uh, organic apples. And, and the base of this is just that I mentioned we have a whole variety of different disease-resistant uh, trees mm-hmm. that we've planted. Uh, there are some sustainable, uh, organic ways to produce apples, and uh, people are uh, doing that. They're certified to do that here in New York. Unfortunately, it's a lot more expensive and time-consuming uh, than it is to do it with traditional methods. So, and and they they found that in most cases they can't command the higher price uh, that'll make it profitable. But some some growers are able to do it with specialized markets. Yes, that's interesting. I mean, people, you know, when when they they want organic produce, but they also want it to be perfect, you know, and cheap and, and, and less expensive. Yes, and that's definitely a challenge. Well, um, Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm going to post a link to um, the website uh, for your research station and for Cornell. I really appreciate it, and they can take a look at it on our Facebook fan page. Um, we hope to have you again uh, sometime in the future. It's been my pleasure. I'd love to come back. Okay. Um, I'd just like to end by saying that Michael Pollan and his book, The Botany Desire, chose the apple as a symbol of sweetness, and we've been in love with apples for millennia. An apple tree is a long-term investment, taking five to ten years of growth and attention from the farmer before it bears fruit. So consider that when you take a bite. Thank you to Jack Kinsley for producing, Nat Wiener for engineering. Thank you to Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, um, and also to Hearst Ranch, our sponsor. If you miss any part of the show or you want to listen again, it's available via archive on the website, heritageradionetwork.com, and via podcast at iTunes. Please leave a comment on our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc. We Dig Plants. See you in the orchard. <laughs>